Welcome to The Beat Society, where I indulge in conversation with folk from all walks of life in the artistic world to find out what puts the beat in their society. Over the course of the series, I'll be chatting to a range of people in different creative industries who will be sharing their personal stories and work. So sit back, get comfy and enjoy. Hello folks and welcome to another episode of the Beat Society with me, Kim. Coming up, I'll be chatting to filmmaker Michael Beddoes about his latest short film release, Sequins, starring James Dreyfus, along with his mini-series, Jack Whitehall's Food Map. But first, let's talk films. Films have been gracing our screens here in Britain since the late 1800s. By the early 1900s, cinemas had started to pop up in London, where people would flock to watch what started as silent films, and by the end of the First World War, many films came from Hollywood. Film stars such as Charlie Chaplin flourished the screens, along with many other famous names, such as Judy Garland, Doris Day, Cary Grant and Humphrey Bogard, to name but a few. This later became known as the Hollywood Golden Age, a period which stretched right up into the 60s. The golden age of Hollywood was a period of huge success, with studios churning out big cinematic creations such as Singing in the Rain, Citizen Kane and Lawrence of Arabia, many of which are still enjoyed today. Another popular one of its time was the brilliantly funny Some Like It Hot, starring Marilyn Monroe, Tony Curtis and Jack Lemmon, a comedy where a pair of musicians flee disguised as women after witnessing a serious crime. The successes of these films saw huge box office takings until the golden age of Hollywood finally ran its course with one of its final films, Cleopatra, in 1963, which saw significant losses. But this wasn't all to blame, as the birth of television had arrived. But of course it didn't end there. The new Hollywood movement took off in the late 60s through to the 70s, which saw films such as The Graduate starring Dustin Hoffman in 1967. Alongside it is probably one of the most memorable and recognisable soundtracks performed by Simon and Garfunkel. In fact, it was a song, The Sound of Silence, which drew me towards the film. Back over on this side of the pond, the swinging 60s had taken off, particularly in music and fashion. The Beatles had hit global domination and even pumping out films such as A Hard Day's Night and Help. This popular musical presence in film became noticeable, with artist Cliff Richard now starring in his own films, The Young Ones and Summer Holiday. But the biggest British success story was the Carry On films, which, by the end of the decade, had seen over an excess of ten films enjoyed by large audiences. With his slapstick comedy and familiar faces such as Sid James and Kenneth Williams, audiences across the country were enjoying this side of cinema. It became known as an institution. Ooh, matron. In the meantime, directors such as Alfred Hitchcock and Stanley Kubrick were also making an appearance on our screens. Hitchcock, an English filmmaker, notably known for his films such as The Birds and Psycho. Kubrick, on the other hand, was an American who came over to England and delighted us with his cinematic escapisms, such as Doctor Strangelove, 2001 A Space Odyssey and A Clockwork Orange probably one of his most controversial pieces of work. 
In the late 60s, a comedy troupe known as the Monty Pythons had emerged onto our television sets of many households up and down the country. Their success grew, and by the mid-70s and early 80s, they had released three films, The Holy Grail, Life of Brian and The Meaning of Life. In 1979, Life of Brian sparked debate on BBC's Friday night, Saturday morning programme, where a couple of the Pythons appeared alongside religious figures, who, let's say, didn't take much of a liking to the film. By the 1980s, Britain had gained its first ever female Prime Minister, Margaret Thatcher. Britain had started to see change in its social and economic past, and with many cuts across the art world, the British film industry began to suffer. But by no means were we not delighted with many films to excite us over the decade, from real-life-inspired story Chariots of Fire to a comedy A Fish Called Wonder, and of course the wonderful and witty With Nell and I, which actually is still loved by many die-hard fans today, with its memorable one-liners such as We've gone on holiday by mistake. By the late 80s, Channel 4 had launched its own platform to showcase films. British filmmaker Ken Loach had been around since the 60s, with his film Kez being probably one of the more well-known pieces of work, but he appeared back to delight audiences in the 1990s. His work, which showcases normal working-class life and events, captured audiences and connected with them, that later made him one of the most iconic filmmakers. My personal favourite is Ladybird, Ladybird, released in 1994, where a mother's children is taken away from her. Hard-hitting drama based on a true story which reflects the politics of its time. As we move through the years and into the digital age, films now appear on different movie channels accessed on TV, along with many cinema goers who still enjoy the experience of the film that they're about to embark on. Viewing platforms have evolved and many of us are finding new and exciting films on networks such as Netflix. Today, many of us are still enjoying films with its vast genres to delight us all, a place to truly escape for a couple of hours. Joining me today is a filmmaker from the Midlands, Michael Beddoes, who originally had other ideas of entering the world of film and TV as an entertainment journalist, but after finishing university, decided to embark on his own projects. He later got in touch with a popular American TV producer, Sirith Yavne, who worked on the popular series 24 and Supernatural, who later became his mentor until his sad passing in 2018. A few years earlier from that, Michael had co-produced his first short film with director Felix Thompson, which premiered at a well-known festival in Austin, Texas. Since then, he's worked on numerous projects, which includes his latest, a short film called Sequins, which sees a young teenage boy in the 90s trying to fill his ambitions as a drag queen. Michael has also recently directed a short miniseries called Jack Whitehall's Food Map, which sees Jack and fellow comedian friend Lloyd Griffiths taking a break from their busy tour and trying different foods each place has to offer. Please welcome Michael Beddoes. Hello there. Thank you so much for coming on the Beat Society. How are you doing? How are you finding lockdown? Have you sort of found it a time where, you know, your creative juices are flowing or you, you know, you're like most of us where we're just sort of sitting back and catching up on the latest Netflix box sets, if you like? <laughs> it's a bit of a mix. Um, it's actually given some brain space because you've 
allowed yourself to unplug from the daily grind of having to find the next job or find the next shoot or work on something. Um, it's given more space to think, to write. Um, I've written and co-written some scripts that have been planned for a while and now actually have the time to get them done. Um, and actually, I've restarted my own production company and um, I'm sort of doing co-production deals with other bigger production companies as well as sending out my uh, formats and scripts for consideration at broadcasters. So actually quite a bit going on. So that's good. So you're actually using this time to actually get on with lots of different other projects and sort of, yeah, like you say, you've got a bit of a headspace, bit of time now to get on with those things. So actually, it's kind of worked in your favour in some respect, you know, having this extra time just to, you know, get through, you know, lots of different other projects, which sound really exciting, actually. Um, I wanted to go back to obviously where it all began. Um, I was thinking the other day, actually, the first film that I had seen in the cinema, and I mean, this was probably like 92 or 93 or whatever it was and it was uh, it was Aladdin I remember I must have been about six maybe seven and my mum and dad taking me to the cinema in Leicester Square to see that but do you remember you know going back uh, a while what your first cinema experience was and obviously did you ever feel that you you know in the future this was something that you would obviously wanted to be a part of well I don't remember specifically the first but I do have a, a, an early one and that was um i loved ghostbusters the 1984 version um, yeah but because i was born in 1984 i was sort of five years old and and had worn out the tape and was now borrowing it from blockbuster video so i loved that <laughs> film and a, around my birthday they released the sequel um in i believe it's 1989 i want to say um, yeah my parents took me and three or four school friends to go and see it um and <laughs> and there's a, a couple of effects in that film that scared the hell out of me <laughs> uh, in particular <laughs> moment where sort of pink slime comes out of the taps in a bath and starts to fill a bath <laughs> and then tries to grab somebody um, yeah <laughs> and uh to get me to take a bath afterwards it took my dad to sit down and just try to do a rudimentary explanation <laughs> of how you superimpose one special effects image on top of an actual image and I think that seeded <laughs> the idea that this this sort of filmmaking it was like magic because it's a constant trick it's a constant storytelling trick which is what magicians do so that really captured me at five and that's my my vivid memory and then um, I grew up in a sort of suburban area where we had a busy main road it wasn't that safe to play outside unless you're in the garden. So whenever the weather was bad, um, it was we went down the local video store, like a local version of Blockbusters. And again, memories there are the three Back to the Future movies. Yeah. Uh, Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade. So all of these great movies of that era are stuck in my brain because you'd have nothing else to do. You couldn't stream things back then, so... <laughs> It's a couple of videos on a, on a two-night rental and you'd get to sort of watch them and watch them over and over again. Like, I must have watched the second Back to the Future about 50 times. 
Oh, I bet. Yeah. That kind of reminds me because you're obviously the same age as me. I was born in 85. And, um, you know, I remember all those sort of films coming out as well. And, you know, I was born and bred in Soho in London and we had a prime video. And I used to spend a lot of my time in there as well, you know, choosing the, the latest VHS uh, releases. But Ghostbusters was a really good one. And obviously, you know, it came out... Um, you know, I was far too young, wasn't even born. But I, you know, I, it, it's quite a scary one, actually. When you look back at it, um, you know, my partner, he, he's about 10 years older than me. And he, one of his first experiences was watching Ghostbusters. And he must have been about, I think, maybe seven or something at the time. And it frightened the daylight out of him. You know, there was a bit where the a, a sofa comes alive and it kind of stuck with him. So I, I know what you, what you mean about, you know, the Ghostbusters and, and that sort of, um, you know, that memory of that. But no, it's interesting to go back. It's nice to hear you know people's sort of first uh memory if you like one that they can remember that they can go back you know of a, of a film that they enjoyed and and something that perhaps stuck it, with them it um, does stay with you as well because it's that um films like that and i know there's films now like the marvel films and the disney films but there's um with things like ghostbusters there's an iconography to the design of that film and how it's shot and the characters and even you know the outfits they wear so it does sort of plant itself deep within your psyche even when you're like 35 like I am right now sat in yeah. my lounge the the piece of art above my <laughs> tv is a drawing uh like a sketch of the hook and ladder eight firehouse the ghostbusters firehouse and oh yeah on my side <laughs> table in my bedroom is a lego um ecto one the the ambulance they have Yes, so yes. This this sort of iconic stuff from seeing the films and watching the cartoon that spun off from it. You know, I I had the sort of plastic uh, proton pack, uh, and Mum got a yeah. boiler suit for a fancy dress at school, so I could have a Ghostbusters outfit. <laughs> and it's oh, fantastic! So deeply into your brain that it lives straight through. And um, I've been to New York, I'm lucky enough to say, four times now. And every time I go, even when I went out there for a shoot. I take the time to go and walk to Tribeca and go and sort of put my hand on the side of that firehouse. And it's almost like become a, a mini Mecca for me to go visit when yeah. I'm in town. When you were obviously growing up and you sort of started getting into perhaps films and things like that, were there any sort of particular directors that perhaps influenced you? Or were you sort of, you know, w w when you were at home, obviously you said uh, when you were younger, you spent a lot of time in this, you know, this video shop where you used to, you know, get VHSs out and that sort of stuff. Were your family uh, inspired by films as well? Did, did, you know, did you sit as, you know, as a family, you know, in, on an evening and watch these sort of films? Or you were, were you influenced? influenced by any sort of particular director of the time Not really actually in retrospect I think maybe I was but at the time it didn't feel that way because um, my mum is not into films she finds it quite boring to go and sit for two hours in a cinema my dad loves it um, and so films were few and far between if they're on the tv and they fancied watching them it was mainly those videos um, on those rainy days where I could plunk myself in front of the tv on my own and watch them um, but Looking back at the particular kinds of films, so the, the Back to the Futures and the um, the Indiana Joneses, I actually started as a producer and then moved across into writing and directing. And actually, a lot of filmmakers of my generation cite Steven Spielberg, the director, with things like, you know, going back and watching Jaws and then in the 90s when they're the right age to see Jurassic Park. 
and then later on discovering stuff like Schindler's List and discovering how flexible he is as a storyteller. Whereas I think without even knowing it, Spielberg is a producer because he produced Indiana, uh, he produced Indiana Jones as well as directing it. Um, and he also produced Back to the Future, but did not direct it. Yeah, so, you know, but he's been involved in all these wonderful sort of timeless classics, if, if, if you like, um, lots of big blockbusters. I think as we start off when we're young, we're sort of drawn to these big sort of, um, you know, epic films, as you say, such as Back to the Future and the Indiana Joneses and, and perhaps things like Star Wars and the Jurassic Parks and all those sort of things. Uh, and then, yeah, I think as you sort of without probably knowing it as you're sort of getting older and you're sort of going to the cinema more maybe or discovering these new films you're sort of looking at different types of films you mentioned Schindler's List there and things like that it's sort of you know as you get older you're sort of discovering a different side to cinema so to speak I guess um so no, that's really interesting. I mean, I I mean, I love things like Tarantino as well. I know he's quite an iconic um, director, um, but you know, I, I like that sort of side of cinema as well. Obviously, I never watched those things as I was a kid. It probably would have scared me. But as I've got older, um, you know, having watched you know those big sort of epic films, I, I've sort of you know discovered other you know other directors, other types of. Um, of work out there but no it's all really interesting you know there's so many different genres out there and you know different stories told and different perspectives and you know different angles and that sort of thing so it's, it's all really fascinating um i mentioned in your intro that you um had you know when you were sort of starting out you came into contact with a well-known tv producer what was it about him that caught your eye that made you think right this is the person that I'd like to get in contact with to perhaps guide me and advise me through, you know, my career. I was a little bit lost. So I'd done a, an undergrad in journalism because I wanted to be like a culture uh, correspondent or a culture journalist doing music and films and theatre. Um, and then towards the end of it, I started to think I want to make um, films and TV. And But I was a little bit lost because I have a family that aren't connected to the industry in any way. So, you know, West Midlands based... Um, my dad is a uh, appliance consultant, so he sort of advises companies on what to do with their kitchen goods to make them more reliable, make them better. Um, and then he fixes problems in the field for the engineers. Before that, he was an engineer. And yeah. then before that, there was sort of an element of, of mechanics and doing uh, being a mechanic. His father was a mechanic. Um, so it's kind of like very practical skill sets that are really useful. And I picked up a few bits but um a long way from <laughs> from media and there was no link there was no in so um I went back to my parents after uni and got a job working PR just to bring in some money and to save up for whatever the next move was or the next step and I was there for about six months and a li yeah a little bit lost actually and and I wanted to do it, I just didn't know how uh, and I was in the local post office in a it's sort of a small little villagey post office, not far from where my parents are. And uh, the woman behind the counter said, oh, your mum said you're looking to do this. And she goes, I shouldn't really tell you, but there's a there's a producer of like American TV shows and he lives in the village. Um, I can tell you oh, wow. where if you want to like pop something through his door or like really helpful, probably shouldn't have, but really helpful. 
Um, so I wrote him this cold letter and I just didn't, I didn't hear anything for about a month. So I'd already experienced this writing cold letters to people in Soho and Shoreditch. Like um, I, I would look up production companies and write to them, even just asking for advice or a placement. And I think I got one reply, was, which was a polite no. The rest just, you know, goes in the bin or goes on the slush pile and never gets read. So I'd assumed that's what had happened. It was like all the rest. Um, but then his wife called me out the blue because I put my mobile number on the on the letter and said, I've read the letter down the phone to him. He's actually in Toronto filming um, and has been for a huge chunk of time. Um, and he has been his intention to call you or arrange something. Um, he's absolutely mortified that hasn't happened because he's been so busy and he wanted me to call you say he's he loves the letter and when he's back in two weeks time you should go down the town and find a coffee shop and he'll give you a couple of hours of his time to ask any questions um, and so that was it like um, we met and he must have spent four or five hours with me and wow. his TV guy's done some films, but he, you know, he was on 24, the Kiefer Sutherland show. And then he was on yep. Supernatural, which is a big hit for CW. He did the yeah, no, Spielberg yeah. actually and did the pilot for Falling Skies. Um, so he's done a, he's done a lot. And um, yeah, so gracious with his time. And then I thought that was it, but actually we stayed in touch and we'd exchange emails. And when I made my first short, I told him what it was and he gave me some advice on my first day on set. And then every Christmas I would go home and visit my parents and I'd make sure that on Boxing Day I'd go over to his place and have two, three hours catching up with him. And that carried on every year um, until unfortunately he passed away a couple of years ago. So. Uh, yeah, so that's that doesn't happen anymore. That's an that's a really fascinating story. So it was kind of like a stroke of luck that he was, you know, he lived in this village that you were obviously, you know, your parents were obviously living in, um, and you know, you were doing all those letters to all these different production companies in London. But actually, it was there on your doorstep practically that's that it all kind of took off. I mean, that's incredible. And he's, you know, he, you know, he's a very well, well, I should say he was, unfortunately, but, you know, it was a very well established and recognized, um, you know, producer in the TV world. So that's incredible to have that, you know, to, you know, to suddenly sort of be, be you know, slightly lost in what you want to do and then sort of find a direction and then to have that person actually there um, already. I mean, that is that's an incredible story. It's not something that you hear every day. So, wow, that must have been, you know, and then to spend every, you know, Christmas, with, you know, with him for a couple of hours, catching up, giving you all this wonderful advice as well. Um, what was the sort of best advice that he gave you as an aspiring it's, filmmaker? <laughs> the first piece, the first thing he ever said was um, <laughs> from the first meeting you have with either the writer or the studio or the director, it doesn't matter if it's a short TV or film, he said a great producer um, should have huge eyes, huge ears and a little mouth, which I thought was great. Um, he said soak up all the information <laughs> that's going to be useful to you later. Like you can have an opinion later, but now it's time to soak up all the creative elements and figure out how you're going to do this. So that was number one. And, and then there was another piece at the same, that initial meeting where he said um, a great producer can all the great producer needs is a pen, a pad and a phone and they can do it anywhere in the world if they've got the skills. 
Yeah, absolutely. That's a great piece of advice, actually. How fascinating. And obviously, since then, you've gone on and you've, you know, you've worked on lots of different projects of your own, uh, including the the latest one that you've done. So you've just released a short film called Sequins um, about a young boy growing up in the 90s trying to fulfill his ambitions as a drag queen, which is very good. I watched that, by the way. And um, it was obviously it won and been nominated in several different film festivals. How did the idea for that particular First film all, come about? Thank you for about? watching in the kind words. That's really nice to hear. Um, the idea initially was the writer Amy Clarks. So uh, we have been friends for a very long time um, and uh, we basically became uh, a couple <laughs> about four and a half years ago now. And in the early <laughs> days, she was just talking about this idea and it came from the fact when she was at college, she was at Performing Arts College in Dublin. She lived with a couple of guys who were sort of on the same course, but were discovering their drag, discovering their like act and their skill set and what their persona was. And because she lived with young people discovering that, um, it, she happened upon this idea of right now, it's still tough. If you are anything in LGBTQ, it's still hard. And there's still a lot of bigotry and awfulness in the world. But there is, for example, you could put on Netflix right now. And on one of the top rated or trending things is RuPaul's Drag Race. And so a top rated Emmy award winning yes. show telling you drag is not something to be ashamed of. It's a performance art. It's something to be celebrated. You could also go on Facebook and find a group for drag queens, which we joined actually when we were researching sequins. You can find your people digitally and have a positive reinforced message. Whereas in the 90s, people we found people weren't as accepting because we interviewed some people from the from the gay scene in Blackpool. Um, and you would be, I imagine as a kid, he's 17, our character. You can't jump on Facebook and find your people. You can't go on the TV and have a drag queen telling you, you know, RuPaul's motto is if you can't love yourself, how the hell are you going to love somebody else? You can't find that. You're quite isolated. And actually in that era, the, the mass-produced Nokia mobile phones that I remember from being at school and getting my first mobile phone, they weren't readily available for another six months to 12 months. So you don't really have a mobile phone can't text your friends there's no whatsapp there's no readily available internet and if there is it's in front of your parents on the one computer and it's dial up you've got um the very wonderfully talented james Dreyfus in it who i remember from the sitcom gimme 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 and i noticed you also had uh, ben wilbond who was in things like the uh, the thick of it with um james that was quite funny because we with that character, we hadn't really got anyone in mind. And there was a, there were a few names sort of moved around myself between myself and Amy. And that was people we knew or people we had an in with. and But just something wasn't quite clicking for us. So, um, you know, we that was, that was cast relatively close to the shoot, I would say, a few months before. Um, and that was, Amy was working for a, for a woman called Jane who used to work as a stage manager on BBC sitcoms. And she'd worked on the Thin Blue Line with James. Uh, and she just said, what about James Dreyfus? And we were like, well, that's perfect. He's 
part of the scene. He has openly said, you know, I'm, I used to go and see Lily Savage in her prime down at the Royal Vauxhall Tavern. So he's he lived that 90s drag queen, you know, a little bit blue, a little bit cheeky, very rude. <laughs> um, yeah. And so he gets it. He mm-hmm. watched it and he could filter that into his performance. So what happened was Jane reached out to him directly while I made a simultaneous reach out to his agent. So you can get it in a, almost like a production right. pincer movement. The agent is saying, I'm going to read this and hand it on if it's any good. And then James is ringing his agent and going, a friend of mine has said, you should have a script waiting for me. And now it's going to filter through. Um, <laughs> with Ben, I've known Ben for a very long time. I met him when I did a set visit on Horrible Histories and then went on to make a short called Meeting Daddy for a brilliant direct TV director called Bex Rycroft. And he was in it. He was, the, uh, he was one of the co-leads in it. Uh, and then we realized we didn't live too far from each other. So we've been friends ever since. Um, and from the moment we knew that the dad character was there, um, I'd always been interested in Ben doing it. Mainly because Ben comes from a world in com- of comedy where there's lots of dialogue, lots of jokes, lots of punchlines. And actually reading the script, I was like, there's a load of yeah. really nuanced physical acting whoever plays the dad has to do, but there's not actually that much dialogue. So it's very different from everything else he's doing so um yeah and he, he loved it so he came up to blackpool for a couple of days and uh yeah did it it was brilliant we set this in blackpool because you know it's got that kind of deep history of cabaret and drag uh, amy was actually born there and then moved yeah. to ireland then moved back and then moved back to ireland so she she has blackpool on her birth certificate and family oh. all <laughs> over the place there um and what we said was if we're going to bring in a ben who is London-based, and a James, who is London-based, um, for the older roles. What we want to do to be to be genuine is to cast, do an open casting, and cast all the young roles locally. So actually, we did a, we did a bunch of open castings in Blackpool and around, uh, and I found all of our young cast in the same place, which was Blackpool and the Fylde College on the, um, I think it's theatrical arts or theatrical performing arts degree course. Um, they all had an inbuilt yep. chemistry because they've been studying together for three years. So Robbie was great, but the bully Marcus, um, Nicole, who plays Stacey, they're all friends and they spend every day together. So there is a great sort of working rapport between them. At the end um, scene as well, where obviously they're at school and they're doing this talent show. It's quite funny as well, actually, because you know the act before him is this sort of girl doing this weird dance or whatever it was I can't remember now that was really funny and then he came on and it was such a poignant moment and then you have obviously his mum his dad and his nan in the audience and it's just the expressions on their faces as he's singing this song obviously this song that he'd you know it was playing in the car I think when the dad was obviously taking him uh, to school Um, but no it was a really lovely poignant moment at the end there You've also worked on a um, completely different project with comedian White, uh, Jack Whitehall, uh, Jack Whitehall's Food Map. Now, that's obviously a lot, you know, a very big contrast to contrast to sequence. It's a web series. It's about food, mm-hmm. four episodes, <laughs> each in a different city where Jack's tour was going to be before Christmas. Um, and then him and his support act slash friend Lloyd Griffith, they go out and they have lunch. 
and they set each other sort of silly food challenges in that almost top gear challenge kind of way and it was fitting around Jack's tour date so it was a lot of fun <laughs> it, was, it was manic and hectic before Christmas I mean um, we shot so the first episode was Newcastle which meant going up on a Friday night, jumping after work in the production office, jumping off the train, going straight to the restaurants, checking them all out in the evening, sort of 8, 9 p.m., and doing your shot listing in the hotel, and then up the next morning to shoot a lot of sort of cutaways, VTs of the city to establish it. And then we had Jack and Lloyd for two, three hours to get all their parts. And then we go back to filming restaurant bits people preparing food cutaways of the places and then we'd be back on the train back to london um my last thing before i let you go is i want to know you know if there are any sort of aspiring filmmakers out there that are listening that want to embark in this you know in this world what sort of advice would you give them um there are incredible youtube tutorials uh, masterclasses with people like scorsese um, there's writers' workshops with Aaron Sorkin, who wrote The West Wing. Learn from the best. Listen to what they've got to say like a guest lecture, but also read everything, look at everything. And if you've got a story to tell, doesn't matter if it's a documentary, an animation, make it. I mean, I, um, with what's available online, you can very easily get yourself to a base knowledge to make something. And your first film, it might be brilliant. It might not be the best thing in the world. But the, the greatest thing you can do is is do it, fail and learn for next time. And if you're doing it on a tiny project with you and a couple of friends, you know, you might get bottled lightning. You might end up looking back at it and going, that's fantastic. And, you know, going out to festivals, you might look back at it and go, Ugh, um, not altogether, please. But next time I would change X, Y and Z. I know exactly why this doesn't work. And that's the best education you can get. That's better than a film degree is is learning from your own mistakes and being doing it and failing i've learned so much and yeah. every shoot every script i work on every phone call i have with a filmmaker about producing for them is like going back to film school i'm learning because there are so many different personalities so many ways to tell a story that you if you think you know it all if you think you're a master of your art you're not <laughs> and, you are you're probably going to fall down due to <laughs> uh, an inflated ego um there's yeah i'm now working on a on a web series we're planning to shoot over zoom while we're in lockdown a comedy series i'm one of the writers and the producer um and actually i'm exchanging emails with amy who's my other half is also writing on it but i'm also exchanging emails with the director writer ben highland um and we're all learning off each other. Like I gave him a set of notes this morning for his three scripts, a different look at what he's done. And he's come back with notes for mine and he's right. You know, and there's sometimes when you turn around to look at his notes and go, I see what he's done there. I don't agree. I'm going to push back. And there's sometimes when you go, I hadn't thought of it like that. That's fantastic. So yeah, every day that you do this, regardless of discipline should be a learning experience. So go out, make stuff, write scripts, get feedback from your friends, your family, someone you know who's made a short once or, you know, doesn't matter who it is and learn from that feedback or learn from failure.
That sounds like a good piece of advice to end on. <laughs> That's excellent. Um, oh, it's been so nice chatting to you and, you know, hearing all about, you know, your experiences growing up and how you started and, you know, where you are now. And um, Sequins is such a lovely film. I really, really enjoyed watching that. Um, so congratulations on that. It's a really, really just a lovely film. Good luck with everything in the future with all your other projects and things like that. Thank you. Oh, you're welcome. Thank you so much. Thanks again for coming on the Beat Society. That was today's guest, Michael Beddoes. You can catch his latest short film, Sequins, online now. You've been listening to the Beat Society. Written, produced and edited by Kim Lewis.